This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello, and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio, on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio, and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Louisa Ermolino, Reviews Director at Publishers Weekly, filling in for Rose Fox this week. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Tom Hart discusses his graphic memoir, Rosalie Lightning. Then, PW senior writer Andrew Albanese takes a look at last week's American Library Association, or the ALA. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen BookScan. So, um, we discussed a little bit about the kinds of books and, say, nonfiction that we've been seeing. And post New Year, it's a lot of life changes. There's some spiritual books, there's uh, health books, uh, dieting books. And uh, topping the list is, is that uh, life changing book by Marie Kondo, The Life Changing Magic, about eliminating. Uh, Eliminating stuff uh, that we all read. Oh, the and, old clutter yeah, trick. Yes, exactly. So she's got a new one. This is an illustrated book. So that's at number one. We also have The Lucky Years, How to Thrive in the Brave New World of Health by David B. Angus. We don't have a review of the book, but the jacket promo says, best-selling author Angus unveils the brave new world of medicine, one in which we can take control of our health like never before, and doctors can fine-tune strategies and weapons to prevent illness. So this is uh, MD, Angus, who's who's kind of empowering patients to take on their own, or at least overseeing their their uh, own health care, much like a general contractor might. Um, then we have Hoda of the Today Show, the co-anchor, Where We Belong, Journeys That Show Us the Way. Uh, again, we don't have a review of this one. Uh, we say that New York Times bestselling author, inspiring, she offers inspiring stories of people who find their life's purpose in unexpected ways, often surprising themselves and the ones they love. Uh, so again, another book about you know life changes. We have uh, one more, uh, and this is Rocco Despirito, who uh, after his first, he's Italian chef, after his Italian-American chef, who uh, after his first couple of books of Italian cuisine uh, in the last four years or so, has made a complete change and is just is cooking wholesome and uh, healthful foods. He's got his own line of products as well. And this is called the Negative Calorie Diet. Lose up to 10 pounds in 10 days with 10 all-you-can-eat foods. Wasn't Rocco a big mama's boy? Wasn't his mother in the kitchen with him? Yes, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah that, that sounds about right, as many an Italian, Italian-American man might be. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Yeah. And he wrote, I think his first book was was about cooking with, uh, mama. Cooking with mama, something <laughs> like that, or at least showed uh, 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 inspir- his mom as inspiration. Yeah. Well, what's interesting, Mark, is there's so many of these books about health and wellness and cooking, and yet some of them just rise to the top. Yeah. What do yeah. you think it is? Uh, sometimes luck. Uh, uh, 
platform is always good. Um, and I, a lot of it is, I, you know, I still think there's some sort of hand sell, you know, sometimes hand selling going on. Now, Rocco's been in the business for a long time, and he started, uh, I think he cooks for uh, famous, well-known people. So uh, his name has been rising. The condo was just such a huge bestseller. And I think that kind of came out of the blue. And so now she's got a follow-up to that. And uh, after the thousands, uh, hundreds of thousands of copies, her first book is sold. It's not, um, uh, it's not a surprise that her next book will. But especially as it shows illustrations is to say how to fold your underwear or how to fold your socks uh, in order to create you know, space uh, in your sock drawer. Mm. Or maybe how to arrange books. I don't know. So a couple things going in. And uh, I want to say a little bit of it is still luck. Absolutely. What, what about fiction? Well, finally... The um, girl on the train has been knocked off number one by, guess what? Star Wars. Oh. So that's the biggest thing that's happening because it's not easy to get that right. number one spot. But Star Wars certainly has done it. It's a yeah. random house book. Right. The companion to the movie. Sure. Right. And then the um, other new one on the list is The Guest Room by... Chris... Pajalian, yeah. Pajalian, <laughs> who, of course, many years ago wrote Midwives, right. which was a huge success, and he's just been following up with that year after year. And this is number 19, which is a good uh, opening. Wonderful. All right. We've got a little bit of uh, newness on the list, and um, we'll see what happens next week. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Louisa Romolino, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Tom Hart tells us about the graphic memoir, Rosalie Lightning. So we'll be right back. Hi, my name is Gaston Doran. I'm the author of Lingo, Around Europe in 60 Languages. And I'm very happy to be on Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Louisa Ermolino. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Tom Hart on the line. His new graphic memoir is Rosalie Lightning. Hi, Tom. We're really glad you could join us. Hi. Thanks so much. So in our starred review of your book, we, we, we say Hart, which is you, uh, pulls poetry from pain in this tremendous book, which chronicles his memories of the life and death of his daughter, the eponymous Rosalie. And your daughter was, was only two when she died. Um, how did you get the strength? How did you come about writing this book? Well, um, you know, it's just the only option I seem to have. Um, I, for most of my life, I've made these kinds of books, you know, uh, words and pictures and comics. I mean, mostly they've been funny. Um, <clears throat> so when this happened, I, I just found myself scribbling a lot, writing tons, and then lots of notes. And... Um, Google Docs all over the place, and just I just had to keep my mind working, and it would just uh, were kind of, you know, I was trying to understand. Um, and um, soon, soon it became evident that I, I needed to just try and find some sort of form for it, because that's again, that's what I've always done. I've always made these books, you know, stories and words and pictures and characters and situations, and, and so I just started to think of it as a as a, as a form. And again, it was just really a quest for understanding. Um, um, 
So I don't, you know, I don't know if it was strength or or some sort of just desperate compulsion, but it's, it was really the, it seemed like the only lifeline I had. And, and how long did it take you to to? I mean, I, I know we've heard you say that you've started writing this right away. How long did it take you to to work it out? I mean, uh, did you start the illustrations first? Did you start the text? It was tons and tons of writing at first, and um, it it made me realize how much the writing is a part of. Is, is a necessary and even even um, necessary beginning part of the process for me. I hadn't done it in that way since I was a much younger artist, and and um, for a sim for a for a different book, it also felt like life or death. But it was more like the kind of life or death book that when you're just a 22 year old, you just feel like everything's that important. But I created a book, and um, that also started with an enormous binder full of writing. And at that time, we also, I also had a dot matrix printer or something. So just, and I still have that binder. And I looked at it after, or in the middle of working on, on Rosalie, and, and, I, and I realized the process was very similar. So in other words, there was tons and tons of writing at first. I guess that's how my brain works. It needs to sort of process things through, through words and, and sentences. And I guess words are a little more nimble for me or something. But anyway. And Tom, how, wrote, do, you, how yeah. do you write? Do you write prose? Do you write dialogue or just everything? Um, you know, it's it's a bit of free writing. It's a bit of, you know, sort of mental mush sometimes. Right. It's a bit of list making. It's a bit of wondering if this event can be seen in a different light, if 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 I attach this other lens to it, you know, it's, it's a lot of different things. It does, it does become structural at some point where I wonder, does this, does this thought lead to that thought, you know? Um, but in answer to the, the previous question, it was about five weeks of that mm. intensive writing. And, and um, as I, I, I think I started to realize that I had at least mentally the sort of tools to move forward and what I really needed to do was start drawing it. So when I started drawing it, it took about another three and a half years. Once you started drawing, you said? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we say in our review that uh, you refuse to fall into the easy cliches of loss, um, which, which in my mind just, just kind of means that you, you, you were doing just a lot of interest. There was a lot of introspection going on. Uh, but it was an amazing balance that you weren't you know, that you didn't you you didn't go to those cliches. Yeah, um, I'm not sure what those cliches would have been. <laughs> um, but 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 thank you. I just really just tried to um, just tried to do what was necessary to to gain some clarity. Um, you know, and I, I I was there was a time when early in the process when I thought I needed to tell the story of what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and that involved a lot of grim details. Um, and at some point I realized that that was not my, that was not my imperative. Mm-hmm. Um, and I took out some of the grim details cause I didn't want to draw them and I didn't think anybody wanted to read them. And I, and I asked myself, what was the, what was the, the sort of mission? What was the imperative here? And I, I think I, I think I figured out that it was, I needed to sort of integrate the messages that were that were being sent to me, or at least I need to integrate the under the the belief that this did happen, you know. Um, and and so from there, I, I don't know. I just I just did what I did, and I I, I honestly don't know the cliche <laughs> unless it's lots of crying faces or something, which which I mean I guess I drew once or twice in the book, but um, 
but I just I just did what I what I went on impulse a lot, and I think I just did what seemed to, to make the most sense. Well, I think what you I, I think you you tapped on exactly that it was deciding what to leave out uh, of it, you know, um, in order to make the story fuller or, or at least more poignant. Thanks. I mean, there was a lot of editing. Um, yeah. The the binder is enormous, and it's full of all sorts of different kinds of mm-hmm. kinds of notes and and um, details, and sometimes just just um, observations even just events in the travel log and stuff and and so there was a lot of uh just trying to figure out what fit in the in the story which largely is you know psychological i guess emotional or spiritual or something how did you end up at st martin's um went to a friend of mine's agent that agent shot it around you were looking for a major house that's what he was looking for uh yeah i felt like i needed i needed that that strength behind it to finish it. Um, and Michael, my editor at St. Martin's worked with um, a colleague of mine, Nick Bertozzi on a book called the salon that I'm very fond of. I was happy to land there. So, you know, in the past years there have been, I think, you know, more graphic memoirs as opposed to graphic novels, but it seems to be a growing, uh, something growing, not quite as fast, obviously, as graphic novels. And before you'd previously written novels, how was it different writing the, the memoir and barking on that? Obviously, for, with the exception of the obvious uh, 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 pain of, of the experience. Um, yeah, well, the... I never thought of my life as interesting, or at least I never thought of um, any of the details of it interesting. And so I've always, um, I've always created fiction, but I've always created it with a very personal um, bent. So like um, it's, you know, uh, other artists and writers have spoken about an emotional truth. You know, I try, I've always tried to figure out what it was I was experiencing emotionally and, and try and turn it into characters and stories. And, 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 and this time it wasn't, um, you know, I, I was the character <laughs> and, right. uh, and the story was the one, the one I just lived. So I knew I had to, uh, I don't know how different it was to be honest. It was interesting to fold fictional things into it, which is part of the book too, because there are, there are passages where I, where I bring back a fictional a cartoon characters that I created and, and, and sort of insert them into this story as if, as a way to sort of see it more clearly. Um, so in a way there was a little, not fiction, but a sort of cartoon reality in it or something. Um, but I got very interested in memoir and I read a lot of them just um, in the middle of working on this book. And I actually hadn't been that engrossed by the breadth of them. The best ones are excellent. I love Alison Bechdel's book and Eddie uh, Campbell's book and Mouse, of course, and, and uh, David D's epileptic. But, um, but I actually read a lot and I, I started to find them all pretty engrossing. And it's sort of my favorite thing to read right now. I remember one of the first ones that came about was Stitches. Uh, uh, that was mm. about eight years ago, seven years ago, six, eh, maybe, maybe. Uh, that Incredible. We, yeah, that we put on our, uh, you know, one of the best books of, of the year. And that was one of the first yeah. ones, the graphic novels. It was a graphic memoir. Um, d- did you also read non-graphic memoirs? Um. Or you know, I'll say not me? not really. I did yeah. I did read um, I did read Didion's book as pretty early in this in the process. You know, Year of Magical Thinking, which seems to be a go to book for anybody experiencing such such things. Um, but um, 
No, I've read some art- artist biographies and things, but I didn't really read too much of that. Not in the process of, yeah. of working on this book. Well, your drawings are so powerful. I mean, they're they're so simple and direct, and they're just amazing. They're such comics, but you know that they're they're so serious. It's really wonderful. We 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 oh. like and we 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 say uh, a, a, that that your art is a choppily ink mixture of style that recall the childlike simplicity simplicity of peanuts as readily as mid-century horror work. Um, what was your thought on the style of the book that Louisa was re- referring to? Um, well, it's I, I'm I'm humbled that anybody is um is experiencing the, the visuals um uh, good. I mean, or experiencing them as good drawings <laughs> because I, I actually felt like just about every drawing in the book was was me just attempting to reach a certain um, visual clarity and not reaching it at all. There are a couple drawings I like. Um, but, but I'm, so I'm really honored that it, that it communicated at least. I mean, I certainly know some of my shortcomings as a, as a, as a represent, uh, representational artist and as a stylist. Um, but it's, it's true that I've mostly drawn in a style like peanuts or a very sort of simple cartoony style. But, but as, as I, I sort of mentioned in the book that I really was drawn to this, this, middle of the century, 1950s horror imagery. And I, I tried to learn a little bit about how they drew mud and um, uh, rocks and rain and gore a little bit um, because I just I felt so raw for a while. And I just saw that imagery and it seemed to, seemed, um, seemed to parallel my own story. Um, so I did try a lot and... Um, and again, I, I, I feel much more confident about the writing than I do the drawings, and I'm, and I'm, I'm glad that the drawings seem to have worked, but they certainly, um, to, to my mind, fell short of the, the mark I was shooting for, but that's what a style is usually. A style is like all your shortcomings and shooting for some sort of, um, some sort of pinnacle. So you were saying you were reading a lot of 1950s horror. Who, who, were, who were some of the, uh, the inspirations or some of the people or, or, or some of the works you were looking at? Well, the, the biggest ones are, are called EC Comics, and they are um, they're the comics that were coming out for boys, mostly teenage boys. Um, uh, Vault of Horror is one. Tales from the Crypt is another. Mm-hmm. Um, they also did science, the weird science and things like that, and those were very, very popular for a while. The, the artists, there's about a dozen artists behind those. Um, Jack Davis, who's still alive and still drawing, I think, was one, and... Um, Bram Engels is another, um, and the writers often were Al Feldstein and, and uh, some others. Um, the publisher, Bill Gaines, was <clears throat> one of the main people in a series of lawsuits when um, there was a big uproar in the 50s over juvenile delinquency and comics were looked at as the cause, and these, these books in particular were brought up, and uh, the publisher, Bill Gaines, had to, had to, be seen, had to go to court a lot for... Uh, to defend the work as as artistic, and um, basically lost most of those battles. They that's when they instilled the Comics Code Authority, which meant that everything had to be read by a sort of series of uh, a panel of parents, and they would get a stamp of approval or not. Anyway, that's a bit of a digression. But those comics are are pretty vivid in a '50s way, and and um, fun to look at, and, and excellently crafted. That all these artists are just are just are very masterful. Um, so I looked at a lot of that stuff. 
Tom. I was addicted to those comics. <laughs> I didn't know they were for boys. <laughs> well, I'm glad that girls were reading them too. That's terrific. I hope I hope there were tons of tons of ladies reading them with spiders in their pockets, you know, and that kind of thing. <laughs> we're gonna take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Tom Hart, creator of Rosalie Lightning. Uh, we were talking a little bit before about um, what you left out uh, of, of the book in order to create, you know, to, to come, you know, to, to create this story. Um, we talked a little bit about your your design as well, uh, and I'm just going to quote our review once more just to talk about one other element that you that you added we say heart delves into details other creators might have excised uh such as rosalie's favorite phrases and all thoughts one fixates on in the midst of catastrophe Can we talk about that a little bit like uh, you you were able to put all of that in and you you were talking about the craziness of life or the absurdity of life as you're going through something like this yeah. Um, well, again, I was really, really just going on impulse. Um, and I think in doing that, I needed to, I was trying to keep her alive in some way. And I was trying to, trying to put her energy onto the page a little bit because she was so alive one day and so, and so not there the next. And, um, and, you know, I, I, I don't know if it was part of the design to, to, to that before and after to be such a shock. I mean, obviously it is in there. Um, but also I go back now and then to, to her phrases and her way of being, um, partially because I need to keep her, her, her sort of memory, not just her memory, but I need to keep her energy alive. And she was such a, such a vivacious spirit, you know, and such a great, great alive kid. Um, so it had to be, part of the book it was the stuff the stuff i really wanted to draw was was her frankly and it's, it's weird to 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 do that it felt i mean this whole thing is all sorts of full of all sorts of contradictions you know i shouldn't have to been there buying car, a cartoon version of my dead daughter but yeah. i was and it it felt um right. useful you know yeah now, I, I mean, and the the way you had the story unfold, we we uh, we did a profile of you uh, as well in in the magazine, uh, and and you, how did you decide where to start the story? Um, as soon as it happened, I think I I, I needed to turn to art and images, and I, and I um I even emailed some friends and I said, I, you know, if you can think of a painting or a poem or something that can, that, that might help me right now. Just please send it along. And, um, and, and I realized that, that Rosalie had this vivid imagination too. And there was imagination and, you know, largely formed by, by culture or excuse me, by culture, you know, the, the Miyazaki movies and things that, that she had seen. 
and I realized that I should start with her imagery, the imagery that was in her head and that inspired her. And I, you know, I, I, I didn't second guess a lot of things. If I, if I came to a conclusion that that's where I should start, I just started there. Um, some things got edited much later, but not much. Um, but I felt like I needed to be inside her, um, her spirit somehow. And that seemed like the, the only way. Yeah. With her imagination. So you, you had another, uh, you were the creator of something else called Daddy Lightning. Uh, tell us about that and what's the relationship to Rosalie? And when did that come about? I'm not familiar with Well, that is um, when, um, you know, I've always sort of, um, I've always sort of reacted to my own situation by drawing comics. And, um, and sometimes those situations are just, you know, what, Every author does that, but it doesn't doesn't matter too much. But um, when we first had Rosalie, the first two or three weeks were so intense and and sudden um, that I find myself, again, uh, sort of creating characters in a situation to to put those emotions into. And I um, wrote and sort of drafted in a very rough form, a very short 44-page or something, comic that was utterly farcical, just a, just a, a romp, a silly thing. But it was basically about uh, uh, a man trying to keep his baby happy in a sort of um, fictional medieval landscape. It seemed to be kind of pre-industrial. It wasn't very, it wasn't very um, specific. Um, and it was a lark. It was a lark that I just um, wanted to do. I didn't have the time. This is the utterly sad and confounding thing. Um, because being a new parent took a lot of energy and time and being a new parent in New York took a lot of energy and time, um, that even after writing it and drafting it, I didn't have time to draw it. Um, and so it sat on my, um, it sat sort of in my, in my sort of collection of things to do until, and uh, I didn't draw until after she died, which was utterly confounding to me, but I just felt like I had to do it. It's like, cause it had always been the thing I was going to do once. Once time freed up. So actually, I just, I raced through it. I had 12 pages drawn. I think I drew the last 30 in two or three weeks. Sort of in between that writing and drawing stage of, of the big book. So, so did that publish before or after? Yeah, that was published. I, that was published probably um, uh, in April or May 2012, I think. Right. So Tom, in general, how long does it take you to do a graphic novel? Gosh, I don't, um, I don't know. Like the first one I ever did, which was 50 some pages took almost a year and Daddy Lightning, which was 44 pages took a few weeks. <laughs> so you get a little better and faster. Um, if I could do a page a day, I felt like I was working on a good schedule, but then there are lots of days where it just doesn't, doesn't work right. that, you know, and you go back to that page time and time again. And, um, and then there are days you just where you need to bring that energy back. Um, a page a day is what I was shooting for, but I, I usually didn't didn't hit that mark. And the collected Hutch Owens was nominated for a best graphic novel in two thousand. What was the um, establishment? Tell us about Hutch Owens. That's um, that's a character I invented in the early nineties, back before the internet, when. Uh, times it felt like times were simpler. <laughs> yeah. Um, he he's a um, he's a person that has a uh, no home and no job, but is very 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 angry about the commercialism of everything, and especially about the sort of insulting 
ways in which advertisers will sell stuff to us. And so especially we'll sell our own rebellion back to us and things like that. And so that's, that's where my mind was at as a young, as a young person. And I created um, that collection is four stories with, with that character sort of up against a large um, international conglomerate, you know, uh, and they're farces too. They're, I think they're, they're pretty funny. Um, They're, the anti-corporate sort of stance that they take is very common now, and 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 also the the it's hard to satire anything like that anymore because because the, the the world is so bizarre. <laughs> the consumeristic world is so bizarre in corporate world. Yeah, they've kind of won. It feels. Uh, yes, that's <laughs> what I'm trying to say. I think. <laughs> So uh, your 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 uh, uh, other uh, the other hat you wear is as a uh, professor at the University of Florida, and you're also the executive director of the Sequential Artist Workshop. Uh, University of Florida, of course, is in Gainesville. Uh, tell us about that workshop. Yeah, well, the Sequential Artist Workshop is um, it's a school for comics and um, graphic novels or whatever you want to call them, and um, I formed it. Weirdly, we moved from New York to Gainesville, which is in the book, um, partially to start the school um, because I, we were both, me and my wife, burned down on New York City. Um, and I was driven, I think, to form the school I'd always wish I'd gone to. And I was in my early 20s. There was really no, what I wanted was like a very, um, like a, a studio apprenticeship, mentorship, um, very intensive comics program. Um, there wasn't a lot of, there, there was only one college in the entire country, maybe two at the time that even taught comics. And I, um, wasn't very satisfied with that program. I went for one year. And so by the time it came to move down here, I started this school, which is, um, informal, unaccredited. It's for lack of a better word, it's pretty punk rock. We, um, uh, you know, we don't paint the walls often enough or possibly even clean the sinks often enough. Um, but we have a good library and we have excellent teachers and the students know that they're getting a real experience when they're here. Um, and just in our bare bones sort of concrete room, we have a couple rooms now we've expanded this year. We, we just do our best to teach them everything we know and put them on a path so that they can can learn more. Um, I'm really proud of it. It's a great school and it's, it's everything I want it to be. Um, you know, with the exception of like any nonprofit and it's, uh, you know, underfunded and could use a lot of help, but, but it, I think it fulfills its mission pretty well. I'm, I'm really happy to be in the situation. And this is all part of the University of Florida then, correct? No, no, not at all. It's oh. totally, totally separate. We're about 13 blocks from the University of Florida, oh. and we have lots of friends who uh, teach there or are in the administration, and we sometimes work together. Like, for instance, there's a comics conference that is uh, mostly academic, and that happens in April every year, and you know, it's organized by the English department. And uh, they talk to us, and we talk to them, and we, we help them out with that and stuff. But no, we are completely un, unaligned with any institution we could use some institutional help. It's not our sole stance to be on, uh, you know, unaligned to any institution. But right now, we're just pretty much a, a bunch of artists in a garage teaching students. And how did you settle on Gainesville? Well, I, I lived in Gainesville um, in nineteen, I think ninety six or seven, something like that. It's, uh, and that's where I was living when I met my wife Leela. 
Um, but I was passing through Boston where she was. And, um, uh, so she came down and, and visited at the time. And we both, we both liked it. I loved it cause I was living there. Um, and then in the course of the next 10 or 15 years, we came back and visited quite often and especially towards, towards the end of the, the 2000s when um, we realized we might be moving out of New York and, um, it was pretty easy sell. It's a, it's a, it's a town that's full of artists and full of um, uh, smart people and, and a good culture, and it's affordable, and it has lots of great nature and it's warm, and um, there are lots of, lots of selling points. We had a lot of friends here for, from 15 years ago and also from just even visits, little quick one-week visits in the summer and in the winter sometimes. How do you compare being a cartoonist in Florida and then, say, New York, which was the birthplace of comics? Well, um, it's, it's obviously great to be in New York, which does have a lot of, um, a lot of knowledge and memory of comics, right? There are, um, there are galleries which have, have hosted comics events for, for decades. There's, you know, is the Village Voice still around? I don't know, actually. Yes, I think they give it away now, though. Oh, right. Okay. But anyway, you know, the voice has a long history of comics. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the school of visual arts is there. There's tons of, tons of memory there. Um, and it's really, really valuable stuff, but it's hard to be an artist there. And, um, when, when we moved here, we, after about a year, we realized that, that the answer to most of our questions when we tried to, um, accomplish something or, uh, ask for some sort of help or even look to or anything artistic it just the answer was always yes here or let's see how we can make it work and it felt like in new york the answer was always no like if it was looking for studio space or if it was looking for a little bit of um borrowing space or i don't it's it's hard to describe it and it's the the less the lack of stress (laughs) here compared to there for an artist especially for for people that don't make a lot of money and who are new parents and uh, and are working in a weird art form. It just felt like this was the place to be. Yeah, sure, understandable. And and what's it like? Uh, you know, how has you know as, as a teacher, how has comics changed now from maybe when you first started studying? Well, yeah, that's one reason I started the school is that it seemed to be in, a, in an upswell. It didn't seem to be. It was clearly in an upswell. More and more young people more were. Um, were trying them, being raised on them. More and more um, older readers were coming in, wondering what the medium was. Uh, it definitely was just was was becoming a popular medium again, and it, it continues. And it's um, it's great. It's so great because uh, it's the medium we were, or it's the, the sort of audience we were always hoping for in the late '80s and early '90s when Mouse came out, for instance, and everybody was thinking, oh, someday we'll have lots of readers to read a book like Mouse or, you know, well, this will inspire generations of young people. And it took a long while, but I think, um, I think by the mid 2000s, we had, um, we had that audience and we had, and I've seen it, I saw it in the School of Visual Arts when I was teaching there, that there were a lot of students um, studying that art form. And there were a lot of students who, who couldn't afford a school like School of Visual Arts who wanted to study the art form. So another sort of part of the audience I formed the school for. 
Do you have international students? Because there there's a huge interest in graphic novels in Europe and in the Middle East. Yeah, you know, we have a student from India this year. Um, and last year we had a student from Ireland. Um, and I should be number one or two more, but I'm, I'm blanking on them right now. Um, I'm always really excited by that. Um, we, since we're unaccredited, we don't make it easy for uh, international students to get a student visa or anything like that. But but uh, I go back and forth with them over email, and we try and figure out some way. Oh, we did have a student from Palestine, actually. Um, we just um, do what we can to try and try and set them up. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of interest, and I'm getting I'm getting increasingly more and more email inquiries um, from international students. And what's next on the agenda? You said when you spoke to us in the profile that you're not finished with Rosalie. Is that something on the back burner? You have something else you're doing right now? Yeah, well, I'm sure you hear this a lot that writers don't want to talk about this project okay. too much. And I respect for, that. <laughs> yeah, for, no, but, but, but I do think, um, I, I do think that that relationship that involves that loss will, will resurface and seems to be, you know, when I was, uh, when I was a younger cartoonist and I had that Hutch Owen character you mentioned, I, um, I, I killed him off in the first story I ever did sort of at the end, kind of like the way Obi-Wan Kenobi dies at the end of Star Wars. And then I never, never thought about him again. And then I realized I had all these, um, all these ideas sitting in notebooks and, and if they were a, I, if that they were an idea for that character, they became much more vivid, and they became better ideas. And um, and I think the sort of scribblings I've got laying around, I realized that if I let myself continue to feel that loss while while looking at that idea or that doodle or whatever, it deepens. And I, so I'm not sure what'll be next, but I think it, it will. I think those things will surface again. Well, we look forward to whatever whatever does come out then. Thanks. We've been talking with Tom Hart. You can find this book, Rosalie Lightning, in stores right now. Tom, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you so much. I'm really, really honored. Thank you. I'm Louisa Ermolino. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW senior writer Andrew Albanese tells us about ALA. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Warren Zane, the author of Petty, the biography, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Louise Ermolino, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today PW senior writer Andrew Albanese is here to tell us about the American Library Association, or the ALA. Hello, Andrew. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Mark. Hello, Louisa. You're just back from a weekend-long conference in Boston. Tell us about it. How was Boston? Well, Boston was actually quite nice, and I'll have to say for the first time in three years, we didn't get sucked in by the weather in an ALA midwinter. Last year in Chicago, uh, one of the, I think it was the fifth largest blizzard in the history of the city's hit, and it stranded people there for about four extra days. Uh, and the same thing happened in Philadelphia in 2014, though I don't think as many librarians were, were, were stranded at that one. Right. Um, this year, we just had a little rain, but it was fine in Boston. Uh, Attendance-wise, it was a really strong meeting. I was almost surprised, giving, especially given the weather in Boston last year. I would have thought that librarians would have been 
a little jittery about this trip. 11,716 attended, and that's more than came to Chicago. And Chicago is ALA's home base, so they usually draw the highest when they're in Chicago. Wow. So um, what numbers are average when we think of it? You know, it's, it used to be a lot more. Back in the day, ALA Midwinter was, would draw routinely 13,000, 14,000, and then it dripped probably hit around 9,000 for a while. Right. Uh, and then it's been creeping back up slowly. And uh, for the last few years, it's averaged between ten and 11,000. Last year in Chicago, Philadelphia had almost 13,000 because it's an easy city to get to. Right. And see Eastern Seaboard, it's nice. Um, but uh, usually, we're, I think we're settling in around 11,000 for a midwinter meeting. So tell us a little bit, tell us where it's held and uh, just kind of the feeling of the show a little bit. The feeling of the show is pretty upbeat this year. Um, you know, it's librarians have have been, the economy's been wreaking havoc on them, obviously, for the last few years. But there's a sense that it's sort of flattening out. And I wouldn't say that budgets are getting better for public libraries, uh, because they're not. But flat is the new up. You know, that's, you've heard that saying, I'm sure, many times. And at least librarians now are able to plan a little bit better for the future. So most librarians were pretty upbeat about where things stand. Of course, that's not the case in every sector. And uh, e-books uh, remain one of the points of contention for librarians. Well, so let's talk a little bit about ebooks. So, what's going on? I know that you've been doing a lot of reporting on it uh, over the years. Um, what was new this year? You know, I'll tell you, this year I had the chance to actually speak on a panel about ebooks, and I often do panels at ALA, but this was the Digital Content Working Groups. Uh, they do two updates a year. Uh, so I was, was happy to have a chance to talk to librarians at, at, this, at this session. And, you know, there's been progress. We've talked about progress being made with library ebooks. At least now all of the major publishers allow their full catalogs to be licensed for ebook lending. And that's a good thing. That's a, that's a, that's a step forward. Um, but the librarians that I spoke to this year seemed more concerned than ever about the future. Because, you know, obviously it's nice to have access to ebooks. Uh, that's better than the alternative of not having access. But the problems they have now with ebooks are uh, the market, as it's currently set up, is just not sustainable. Uh, they're having real problems with uh, a range of issues. Uh, first and foremost, um, all of the major publishers license ebooks under different terms. Some of them are metered access, meaning that they expire after a year, some after two years, uh, some after 26 lens, some after you know 50 lens or a year, whichever comes first. And the result of that is that librarians have a catalog that's essentially a minefield. They've got books that are exploding, uh, and managing that is very difficult for them. The other part is uh, they're very expensive. Uh, a library ebook can cost four or five times what a consumer ebook costs. And uh, every time they have to spend that much money on a digital edition, that's other formats that they can't buy. And I think we know enough now about what's going on with ebooks is that it's not an either or proposition. Most people are reading both, most people are reading print. And they're reading digitally. They might read something on their phone while they're in line, or they might read a print book on the beach. You know, they're, they're consuming both formats. And it's hamstringing librarians that it's costing five times more to serve that small section of their population that only wants to read digital. So they can't buy an e-book that's theirs. That's right. It's licensed. Yeah. So. At least from the major publishers, it's all licenses. They don't own the content. Uh, they have to relicense the content in many cases after a certain number of lens. And uh, it's a real balancing act for them. And then, of course, they're dealing with a number of vendors in the marketplace. Um, there's, I would say, 
three major, Baker Taylor, 3M, which is now uh, Biblioteca, and Overdrive, um, three major trade ebook vendor options and a host of upstarts. And it's confusing. I mean, you have to manage all these different vendors with different terms. Um, it's for some publishers, they were once exclusive with some of these terms. And you, you, you try to put that out to your user. I mean, how many interfaces can you expect a library user to have to navigate to come away with an ebook, especially when they're used to just one clicking on Amazon and getting it? So, well, and you know, so for the consumers, ebook sales have have dropped. Uh, they're not as strong as they were. But our librarians seeing that people still want to read, so it's a matter that maybe it's more, I mean, people are, would, would rather rent or check, or I should say check out an ebook rather than pay for it, or, or have they, I guess I'm just asking if they have had the same steady interest in ebooks. Ebooks are still on the upswing in libraries, you're right, and it's been, it's a real sort of, uh, I wouldn't say a cause of concern yet, but it's a curious little development in the ebook, consumer ebook market, that ebook sales are declining. In fact, for the first time since the modern ebook market really took off with the Kindle in 2007. Uh, we're going to post an annual decline. 2015 ebook sales, consumer ebook sales, will actually be lower than they were the year before. Uh, and that's, that can be for any number of reasons. It could be like a maturing market. Uh, prices have obviously gone up. Um, there's a number of, it could just be a balancing out between print and digital reading habits. We'll see. But in libraries, the interest, the service is still kind of new. It only really has been uh, popular in libraries since about 2012, when all the publishers started really getting involved with all of their catalogs. And the growth is still pretty substantial. Overdrive, who's the leading vendor uh, for you know for servicing ebooks, ebook lending, is they reported that there was a 19% increase over last year. Uh, that rate is actually slowing though. It was 33% in 2014 over 2013. It was 46% 2013 over 2012. So the rate of interest is declining. But if you look at the actual circulation numbers, uh, they are definitely growing in libraries and libraries are spending more money on digital books trying to meet that demand. Wow. So what else has been going on? What else has, you know, was transpiring uh, throughout the event? Well, you know, I was asked to speak about the ebook market in general. Um, and it's, it was a good time for me to come and speak to librarians about this because we're entering a new phase of the ebook market. And I, I think it's bad for librarians in the sense that you're not going to see a lot of experimentation in the next couple of years. So if the ebook market is not working for you now, you're just going to have to be patient. There's not going to be a lot of experimentation in the next couple of years. And that's because for the first time, really in the history of the ebook market, if we you know, take the Kindle to be the beginning of that market. Um, there's no external business factors that are, you know, right. impeding the ebook market. The, uh, you know, remember when the Kindle launched a black and white e-reader two years later, the iPad came out and ushered in the tablet era that brought with it the agency model. And that brought with it a price fixing case and court imposed uh, discounting right. for the next couple of years. This year, the discounts are all done. Publishers have new two-year deals with Amazon for print and for digital. There's no iPad looming on the horizon. There's no agency model looming on the horizon. This is really the first time in the history of the ebook market where we've got two years where there's not a thumb on the scale. And I think publishers are, for the first time, going to really see what's working and what's not working. Are their prices good? Or are they too high? Oh, uh, are, uh, what do readers want to read? They want print? Do they want digital? You know, it's, so I wouldn't expect there to be 
be any new twists in the library ebook market when publishers have finally gotten to this place where they can see uh, what works and what doesn't work in the ebook market without the DOJ's finger in their eye or Amazon yeah. or somebody. Yeah. So curious, who was on the panel with you? It was Kelvin Watson, who's the director of the, the chief innovation officer at the Queen's Public Library. Right. And uh, he spoke a lot about a lot of the stuff that the library is doing to try to get materials into the hands of the community. And it's really innovative stuff. Uh, and I would say that if publishers were to take meetings and go meet with people like Kelvin and Queens, they would see what a strong ally they have in marketing books to the community. Um, if you really sort of empowered librarians to really go out there and work for you, I have to think they would make a huge difference because they're pouring a lot of time and effort and a lot of technology into making books more discoverable, into pushing books out, pushing authors out to their readers. And also uh, Mark Hyper from BISG, who talked about the recent survey that ALA did uh, with BISG about ebook usage that uh, our own Jim Elliott wrote up uh, the results for. Right. I was in the library conference in Sharjah in the UAE, and the thrust seemed to be about the library not being a place where you find books, but a place where the, you interact with the community, mm -hmm. like moving out rather than just moving people in, yeah. seemed to be what they were talking about, doing more programs and... Was interesting. That's a huge thrust for libraries uh, in the U.S. as well, I think worldwide. You know, library, you can get so much stuff easy online on one screen with one click these days. You know, librarians are no longer places that just collect warehouses of materials for the community. That is still an important role for preservation. Um, and, you know, not everything lives online forever, so librarians have, have a role there. But you see more and more in the U.S. how libraries are really about programming and services, everything from helping people find jobs to holding uh, sessions about how to get your green card to uh, skills training to um, author events to maker spaces. Uh, li libraries in the U.S. Have, have become very community They've always been community-centric, but their programming is getting much more broad and meeting a lot more of the community's needs. Wonderful. And anything else you can tell us about uh, the conference? What else can I tell you about the conference? Well, we're, it's the first of three, I'll say, this year in the first part of the year because we have a, a public library association meeting in Denver right. uh, in early April. And then we have uh, the ALA annual meeting in uh, Orlando in June. So... A lot of librarians are going to be on the road quite a bit <laughs> for the first parts of the year this year, and then we're all going to collapse from exhaustion. And I'm sure try to you'll do be our on jobs. panels for each of those as well. So far, I'm booked <laughs> for each one of those, yeah, as a matter not of fact. Not surprising, not surprising. Well, I look forward to it. I always, it's an honor and a pleasure to speak with, with librarians. And Great. Well, Andrew, thank you so much again. Hey, my pleasure as always. Anytime. Thanks, Andrew. Thank and you. now a final word from our sponsors. I'm Jenny Lawson, the author of Furiously Happy, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Louisa Romolino. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for an interview with Bill Bryson, author of The Road to Little Dribbling. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode stream live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. 
You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 